This is the sixth and concluding part of a series by Terry Virgo on the Book of Philippians. The talks were first given to a gathering of senior international leaders from the New Frontiers family, and Terry has based them on Paul's apostolic relationship with the church in Philippi. The accompanying notes provide an outline to the series and also provide a number of quotations from helpful commentators. I got this uh, commentary at Philippians, actually set of sermons that he did, and uh, one's called Life of Joy, and the other's called Life of Peace. And in each corner, there's a photograph of Lloyd Jones. It says Life of Joy, and there's Lloyd Jones going. <laughs> I couldn't resist on my cover to just do a big smile on him. <laughs> it was Lex who pointed out to me this book that's uh, of Lloyd Jones with a photo of him on the front cover, and it's called What Is an Evangelical? <laughs> and this, this terribly miserable face of Lloyd Jones. <laughs> What is an evangelical? <laughs> the most miserable person you ever saw on the face of the earth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm tempted to read the whole chapter like it. <laughs> Rejoice in the Lord again. Always. And again, I will say. Rejoice. Okay, let's press on quickly. <laughs> Philippians 4, starting at verse 4. Let <laughs> rejoice in the Lord. <laughs> Always, again I will say, rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men, for the Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you're, you've revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, but I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift, more than once, for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance I am amply supplied having received from Epaphroditus what you sent a fragrant aroma an acceptable sacrifice well pleasing to God and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus now to our God and Father be glory 
forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Lord, we thank you for your presence with us here and the breathtaking privilege of being an international family here this morning. And Lord, observing your grace, uh, Lord, and this multicolored family, all its background, all its experience, Lord, coming to the one Savior, honoring the one who alone is worthy to take the scroll and break the seal. And we love you, Jesus, and we, we declare our praise. We thank you the whole world is in your hands. And we thank you for this call on our lives to go and tell it across the nations. And God, we ask you, please, in Jesus' name, for the help, the breathing uh, power of the Holy Spirit to come on us so that we don't just note the verses correctly, but, Lord, that your presence, your power, your divine energy, the spirit of faith. We want to hear this word this morning. We want to be characterized by faith. And we ask, Lord, let these things come to us, even in the word this morning. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, we come to these concluding matters. And uh, here Paul is kind of winding down. But he's also going to thank them for their gracious gift, which is one of the main reasons the letter was written. Uh, he's sending Epaphroditus back to express his appreciation. So as we start, we're starting in verse 4 with a, a further call to rejoice in the Lord, which came out in our prayer time, that the church is to be characterized by celebration and joy, delight and excitement. And again, to as we've said in our prayers, really, praying over our friends from Romania, knowing what difficult times, dreadful times they've gone through as a nation. And yet hearing this morning that emphasis on celebration and joy. And here Paul writing from a place of being in chains. We're not talking about a modern hygienic prison. We're talking about uh, a dreadful, dreadful place where he was in chains. And he just keeps on. The whole epistle is bursting with joy. It keeps on bubbling over. You can't hold the guy down. And so joy is not in circumstances, which will open up more in this passage, but is in the Lord who transcends our circumstances. It's the distinctive mark of the believer that there is joy. And we must always remember that, dear friends. And sometimes it's important for us to feel uh, that even when you feel a failure in yourself. And that's when the enemy sometimes wants to put the pressure on when you feel, I'm the one who failed, I'm the one who's not done well, and it's only appropriate for me to yield to uh, feeling depressed. You want to remember the command of the Lord, rejoice. Again I say rejoice. And a lot of this has to do with discipline of the mind, uh, so that you yield yourself to a rejoicing mode, and uh, don't listen to Satan who says, you're not worthy to sing, uh, to sing and rejoice. You say, no, I won't have that. Bible tells me my, I'm commanded to rejoice. I'm going to get into rejoicing mode uh, because that is the characteristic of the believer. So joy referred to 16 times in the letter, eight times in the, it's a Paul, eight times theirs. And actually it kind of transcends from the beginning. It's more about his joy gradually overflows into telling them to make sure they're also joyful. Let your gentleness or forbearing be made known to all men. 
And, uh, and it's interesting. <laughs> you let that be known to them. And then, then the same phrase comes in verse 6. Let your requests be made known to God. Uh, so uh, there, you're, you're communicating to people grace. You see it personified in the Lord Jesus in 1 Peter 2, who being, when being reviled, did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats. In other words, he let his gentleness be known to them, but kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. You make your requests known to God. You let your gentleness be known to people. Be anxious for nothing. Fear not is a, a constant command of Scripture. Some people say there are 365 fear nots in the Bible. I think that's a, a rush of imagination, so don't get caught on that one. You look up a concordance, it's not exactly 365. It's a slightly popularized thing, um, but it doesn't stand up to counting. But uh, nevertheless, true for every day of your life. <laughs> okay? Fear, I've heard that often said, but uh, one glance at the concordance tells you that's way out. But uh, uh, nevertheless, fear not. Anyway, all right? be anxious. You say, well, what about when Paul says earlier, um, we quoted it earlier in the week, uh, the care of the churches. Uh, well, I think here, this is our response to the care of the churches, or whatever care it is that comes our way. And this is one of the challenges of... Uh, pastoral care or indeed apostolic care that lots of cares come our way and we are the recipients of lots of burdens and uh, uh, rather like a doctor sees sick people uh, we often uh, see people who are carrying problems and burdens and so we do collect anxieties Paul says on top of this I have the care of all the churches now but I am sure he also had this discipline of turning his, his anxieties into prayer and learn to roll it back onto the Lord. It wasn't that he never had a care, because we're told he had many a care. Uh, the care of all the church, and it's the same word, as we pointed out the other day about Martha. It was the same word. But he's saying, listen, don't let anxiety cripple you. Don't let fear uh, finish you. And you'll find Jesus often said, fear not. Only believe. You can't do both at the same time. And uh, we were being called in the prophetic earlier to a more reckless, robust commitment to faith. And fear and faith, they're all, it's like two things running on the same rails. You, it, they can't work at the same time. And so one's got to overcome anxiety. And how do you do it? Well, Paul says, be anxious for nothing. That's first. Let's clear the decks. I'm not going to allow anxiety to clog up my soul. Uh, to just turn me into some kind of frozen rabbit caught in the headlines of circumstances. I just, oh, I just had it. We're not going to do that. We say, no, I won't have that. I refuse that. But what do I do then? Well, by prayer and request, I make my, no my, my concerns known to God with thanksgiving, vital ingredient, with thanksgiving. Why are we thanking? Well, because of this wondrous word we've heard this morning. We've got a God who laughs. We've got a God who laughs. What's it going to sound like? I look forward so much to hearing God laugh. It must be the most wonderful sound in the universe to hear God laugh. God laughs out of his super overflow of self-confidence. He laughs. And we've just got to get into God. We say, I'm not going to allow fear to grab me. Right, we'll push it out. Fear not. So come on, I won't let it happen. Now, does that mean there's no problem then? No, there are problems. Right, let's pray about it then. 
Right, we'll bring it to God. Lord, get those Galatians through. Get those Philippians through. Whatever. I pray with thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord. You began the work. You won't abandon them. These are the ways in which we saw in the first session how Paul prays. Paul prays theologically. He says, you began it. You will complete it. He argues his case with God. Then the peace of God begins to replace the danger of anxiety dominating our lives. And that's why, dear brothers and sisters, we must be men and women of prayer. Not just to be legalists who pray, but to get our soul happy again. Otherwise, you will accumulate pressure and it will weigh you down. And some of us are taking on more pressures. We say, would you uh, look after these churches? Oh, how wonderful. We're saying, will you take more pressure in your life? Oh, I didn't think of it like that. <laughs> but that's what we're saying. Take more pressure. Take more grounds for anxiety. And we say, God. And I think of what we're going to be talking about later today. I think of Nigel and the area that he will open up to us. You open your eyes to the needs of the world. You think, oh, can I dare even look at it? And you hear our friends come up from Africa and talk about their daily or weekly funerals from the AIDS thing. And you just think, wow, the pressure is phenomenal. We must learn then to be in touch with God and to know the joy of the Lord as our strength, as has come out in the worship time. And so we do need to know this. Rejoice. Rejoice evermore. Don't be anxious. How do you not be anxious? Well, prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving. You are the Lord. You reign on high. You are the Lord. And that, that exercise, we can't do without it. And it's not just for meetings. It's not like a good song to get the people going. No, no, that's a good song for your soul every day. That we say, Lord, I'm just going to believe in you. I'm going to trust you that you can keep us in this. Once again, in this last uh, quote of fees on this page, he brings the corporate nature. Uh, fee is always onto that. And I think it's an excellent, helpful thing for us who love the church and are being directed by God away from individualism. Fee says, even though the experience of God's peace happens, first of all, at the individual level, so he's not missing that, right? We mustn't overstate fee or misunderstand him. He's saying, yes, it is at the individual level. It is doubtful that peace in this context refers only to the well-arranged heart. <laughs> but for Paul, peace is primarily a community matter. As noted below, the ascription God of peace occurs in Paul in contexts where community unrest is lurking nearby. Not only so, but the mention of peace in his letters, apart from the standard salutation, occurs, that's the beginning of each letter, occurs most often in community or relational settings. Thus, Christ is our peace, who has made Jew and Gentile one people, one body, who are urged to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Similarly, in the argument of Romans 14, 1 to 15, 13, Jew and Gentile together are urged to make every effort to do what leads to peace. Or in the community, Pyrenees of Colossians 3, 12, 4, 6, they are urged to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body we were called to peace. Now that's an interesting emphasis and brings us back. Some of us were at Stonely Bible Week, and I'll make reference to this again later, I think. I personally felt God opened my eyes to the whole concept of the shalom of God in the community of God in a new way when I was preaching on Deuteronomy 15. That, that Jewish uh, word, shalom, is more than just personal well-being. 
It is the, the favor of God over the community that makes us our community of peace with K King Yahweh over this community that dwells under his government, provision, supply, and peace over us. And so peace, probably we need to root our thought of peace back into that Hebrew context of community rather than a kind of Greek peace of mind idea. I think it's fair comment then to think, yeah, there's probably more here than just individual peace, but a company dwelling in peace. So that I think one of the callings for Pete, for instance, uh, there in Zimbabwe, in a scattered church, as he spoke to them uh, just a few weeks earlier, scattered, not shattered. He, he got an apostolic word for the churches so that it wasn't just he's dwelling in peace. He wants a community living in peace that we together are not going to be overwhelmed by these circumstances. So there's a community of peace. They may be scattered, but they're going to walk in peace together. And so I think that's a very helpful challenge. A corporate community, conscious of opposition, and corporate danger, as often the early church was, and these Philippians were, enjoying the peace, the shalom of God over us. And so we just need to learn that this corporate nature, as well as the individual, having to work this out. Obviously, the corporate is made up of many individuals. And we don't, we don't put down the individual, but mustn't miss the corporate. Whatever is true, it's interesting here, whatever is honorable, it's an unusual list of words, and uh, I wasn't conscious of what this is all about until I started looking at the commentaries that point out that here, Paul Lee uh, uses a list of uh, virtues normally in the, uh, in the mouth of Greek philosophers rather than a Jewish or a Christian concept. So he gives this list of things, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute, etc. Phi says the six adjectives and two nouns that make up the sentence are as uncommon in Paul as most of them are common stock to the world of the Greco-Roman moralism. Thus, he appears to be dipping into the language of the Hellenistic moralism in his case, tempered by Jewish wisdom, one or two words have their origins more in his Jewish background, to encourage the Philippians that even though, this is important, they are presently citizens of heaven, living out the life of the future as they await its consummation, they do not altogether abandon the world in which they, uh, they used to and still do live. As believers in Christ, they will embrace the best of that world as well as, and as long as, it is understood in the light of the cross. They could spend a lot of time unpacking that, but the next section too sheds more light, I think. This sentence offers clear evidence that the distinctions between secular and sacred are most often of our making. See, not New Testament Christianity. Of our making, based on our embracing an Old Testament point of view regarding holy things even though it was brought to an end with the coming of Christ and the Spirit. Paul takes a different view that being in Christ sanctifies whatever else is and does. Sorry? One is and does, sorry. So that what is honorable, lovely, and pleasing, as long as it is also worthy of praise, is also embraced by life in Christ. Although the articulation of a later time, this passage seems to embrace the notion of common grace. So that phrase, common grace, 
uh, he's saying that's a later invention as a phrase, but it's incorporating that idea that God's giving us all things richly to enjoy. Here is where Mozart and Beethoven, may I add Dave Brubeck and Stan Getz and Dizzy Gillespie, <laughs> and not only Bach, come under Christian embrace. Now isn't that good? That's very good. He's saying that subdivision of sacred and secular has more to do with the Old Testament concept of what is holy and what is not than it has of the New Testament where Paul says in other places all things are lawful to me. He says all things belong to you. All things are good if they can be received with thanksgiving. There's extraordinary liberty in the New Testament. Phenomenal liberty. Paul says in Galatians they came in to spy out our liberty. We have remarkable liberty. But we said earlier in the week, I will, not be, I will not be dominated by anything. I will not become captive to anything. But we mustn't have that sacred, secular distinction. We can thank God. And so Paul uh, Fee is here saying, Paul's use of these words, which actually reflect Greek values, what the Greeks thought were beautiful, etc. He says you can walk with maturity, comfortably in our world. And there's a, that we must teach that, dear friends, to our churches. There is a defensiveness and scaredness about uh, that sort of... Well, when I think of Dave, just seeing Dave sit there, his exclusive brethren background. I mean, it's very horrid, as they would themselves say, that you can't touch it. That's outside. That's, that's, that's unclean. That's, and so there'll be lots of things you just can't touch. As though you can't live in God's world. But God's calling us to a maturity... That can say that is beautiful. You know, some people say, oh, well, can you listen to Mozart? He was depraved. Hey, the music is beautiful. And we can thank God for beautiful things that are praiseworthy. And that gives us a liberty. We're not weird religious people. But we know how to give thanks to God. I mean, I've often just uh, played through maybe a, something, a musical, or just play the whole thing right through and just think, thank God, this is so beautiful. I remember driving back from the West Country, playing the pastoral on my uh, CD in the car. And you just think, wow, uh, Beethoven's pastoral. You just think, wow, this is awesome. It just goes with the countryside. And you think, thank you, God. And uh, it's not for us to be narrow. Oh, no, no, no. I must only play the Stonely tape. <laughs> Though that is also excellent and worthy of praise. Okay. <laughs> okay, it's very... Very important. Again, it's emphasizing, if I may say, that our grace, uh, if you like, our grace emphasis is not some narrow thing. It's the very nub of New Testament church life. It's the heart. And again, just reminded of the word that Dave gave at uh, Stonely, uh, bring, bringing to us its plumb line rather than measuring line. And we really do. I know that's in another category and in a sense. But so often, we, we can be in danger of wanting to measure. I, I felt measuring line is having both hands on it. Uh, plumb line is letting one come down. And you, 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 there's a value that is in the spirit rather than measured in centimeters. And we've just got to learn how to walk in the good of this. Then verse 9, again, this courageous thing, which we all must get the courage to do. Whatever you see in me, do. And uh, God will be with you. There you go. That's a good leader. Let's all do it. <laughs> God help us. So, uh, <laughs> and the God of peace will be with you. Incidentally, that we haven't time because there's so much I want to get into here. But the peace of God, I believe it is God's peace. 
the peace of God will be with you that defies analysis, it, you know, description. But it's coming out of the laughing heart of God. His peace flooding your soul. His confidence getting right into our hearts. And then uh, if you do these things, the God of peace will be with you. The peace of God and the God of peace in these passages. Then I want to come on to this last section here, which is so important. Acknowledging their gift and their partnership in the gospel. Now Paul begins to thank them for their gift. And uh, this section contains those two famous promises. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, and my God shall supply all your need. It's the sort of verses that uh, find themselves on pretty pictures with sort of birds flying through the background and written across along the bottom is you know i can do all things through christ who strengthens me these are probably among the favorite ones to stick on beautiful pictures and stick them on the wall uh calendars and the like and so it's good for us to go through the passage and find them where they are in the text their gift and paul's uh contentment is the first heading i've come to here at first paul's attitude seems quite strange in as much as he says, um, actually, uh, I'm okay. <laughs> he says, um, thank you for your gift, and so on. Uh, not that I speak from want, verse 11. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along in humble means. I know how to get along in prosperity. And so you think, hold on, Paul. You know, you're supposed to be saying thank you, not thank you, but no thank you, or thank you, but I didn't really need it anyway. It's a strange approach that he's using, but... Ever the teacher, ever the pastor, God teaches us these principles, he is not letting things pass without edi edifying them about the principles involved in what's happened. It's not let's just get some money off these people. He wants to teach them some principles. And there's some very important principles tucked in to this passage. And so he's telling them, actually, he has learned the secret, verse 12, of being content. Apparently, the phrase he uses here is um, a phrase borrowed from um, the world of the mystery religions. That was like an initiation phrase, having learned the secret. Apparently, it's a well-known Greek phrase, and he kind of borrowed it, stole it from there. Uh, it's like, I've been initiated into the secrets of these mystery religions, is how it was normally used. Paul borrows the phrase, and of course, he's not interested in mystery religions at all. But he has learned the secret the Christian secret of contentment. He has learned to be content. Now, of course, a lot of people in our world would love the secret of contentment. And uh, their lack of knowing that secret drives them into drugs, drives them into spending money, uh, drives them into trying to get the lottery or uh, all kinds of things. If only I could find contentment. You know, if you could go door to door in any uh, major city in this world, and say, so I've got the secret of contentment. How people, if they believed you, how they tell, oh, please, please. Because that's the agony of uh, the human race, that they can't find contentment. And so many of them think, if only I could change my circumstances. That's the way they think. You know, if only I could just be in a different situation. If only we could uh, uh, find a better job. Although they think, if only I could leave home and get away. Or uh, if only I could get married. Or if only I could get divorced. You know, it's just if only I could get out of this. Then I'd be content. And lots of people think it's round the corner. Contentment is round the corner. 
with a few changes of circumstances. The things will be better when I've left college. The things will be better when the kids have grown up and left. And it's, people live like that all the time. You can talk to people in cells and in church life and they're always projecting contentment just round the corner. It's kind of just, and we know when things change. And Paul is saying there is a much better secret than that. He says, I have learned the secret of contentment in life. And uh, so he's saying, I've learned the Christian secret. I don't really need your gifts. Oh, it's easy then. I suppose, Paul, you've taken a vow of uh, poverty, have you? You've, you've opted out of the rat race. That's one way, you know, like a, mon a monastic system. We say, well, we've learned to be content. We take a vow of poverty, celibacy, and all the rest of it, and say, that's it then. You know, I've learned to be content. Just turn off, switch off the world. I've... No, that's not what Paul says. That's not the secret. Opt out. He says, I've learned to be content whether I'm abounding or whether I'm in poverty. You think, boy, that is a real secret. That's real life. That's having the secret in real life. Not, as some have said, the real secret is to switch off, get out of the world, go into a monastery. I found the secret. I don't need anything. And sometimes the Stoics had that concept. You either train yourself into a kind of apathy or into a willfulness. I will cope. And Paul says, no, I've found a secret, which we'll come to in a moment. And, and he's saying, I've got the secret. I, I know how to be content. I could handle poverty. I could handle prosperity. NIV says, I've learned the secret of being content in every situation. And then, in that context, comes this famous phrase, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, often when you see that verse in isolation, you feel it's like, you know, rush into the nearest telephone kiosk, rip off your suit, and there's Superman. You know, we can handle anything because I've got rippling muscles under here, really. I'm just power. You know, just come on this platform. Wow. I can do all things. Benny Hinn. Whoa. You know, oh, I can do all things. No, I'm not mocking him. God bless him. He's full of faith, I'm sure. I'm not against him. But I'm just saying that, that we often think of a verse like that. I can do all things like muscle rippling. But the context is whether I'm in poverty, whether I'm in a great place. I can do all things. I've learned the secret of contentment. That's what that verse is about. I've learned the secret of contentment. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's an awesome statement and it's the key to life. It's something we've got to teach and help the saints to do. And, uh, and it's through, notice I've just stuck here, I find it's not... I find it very peaceful to go inside a church. You hear such trash in England. I'm sure many of you don't have to hear it in your nations. You, you are gloriously delivered from this utter nonsense and drivel we have to listen to in England. You know, oh yes, I know what you mean. You can sit in an empty building church and there's the fragrance of the incense and there's the windows and the organ. It's just, you know, gives me real peace. You think, what a load of nonsense. And then some people say, well, say a little prayer. Obviously, there's no one there, but it helps you psychologically. You think, that is such absolute garbage. It's, we find peace. The secret is through him. It's a person. It's Jesus. 
And this has been coming right through the scripture. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. The goal is to know him, him, him. I've learned the secret. Well, it's not an it, it's him. It's a person. I have learned this wonderful secret. For me to live is Christ. I've suffered the loss of all things. So if I'm in a season of loss as well, well, he's the answer. He's my secret. The surpassing worth of knowing him. I had had an extraordinary little season myself since Stonely of going down into Africa for five weeks uh, and then closely followed by going across to the US to be with PDI for their Celebration South, which was held just north of Orlando. And CJ, I know not how, heard that... um, I was having a busy schedule and got in touch with Janice and said, I wanted to come a few days early and come with Wendy, have a few days break, because they've had a full schedule, which was very loving and kind. But it was interesting to me uh, to be in the rigors of what we saw in uh, Kenya, in Zimbabwe, South Africa, seeing people on the edge, seeing the challenges they face. I mean, just living day to day, wondering what the future holds. And uh, just participating, I mean, for a moment, really, in their world, but knowing they're living in that. And then going over to the U.S. and being taken to Disney, MGM Disney with CJ, which was a bit of a riot. But, I mean, you go, you go to their late-night Disney thing. I mean, people think, if only I could win the lottery or save up enough money and go to Disney. You know, it's like the peak. It's, and then you go to their new late night show at MGM. There's 8,000 people sitting in this ark. And uh, uh, th- th- there's the water. There's the island. And then it starts. The music. There's good old Mickey Mouse doing his thing. And the fireworks. And, and the spraying water, which becomes a screen. And the projected images on the screen that seem to stand above the water. And it's all quite fantastic. And then they sing this lovely Disney song. There's a bright new tomorrow, and it's only a dream away. <laughs> and you think, huh? I mean, it's just, it's just a dream away. And you think, um, what does that mean? No, don't think about what it means. There's Mickey, look, way. And, and uh, you know, there's 8,000 people sitting on there, and you're thinking, what's going to happen in Afghanistan? Where's the next plane? What about anthrax? Oh, no, no, no. It's a bright new, bright tomorrow. And it's only a dream away. You know, contentment, if only I could find it. It's a dream away. A dream away. And we're wondering. And I've just been down to, you know, with, with Pete and Hetty and seen what uh, Edward and Frieda are doing up in there, stretching out to the extreme poverty and the needs. And you think, look at these giants. They've learned the secret of being content. Now, we can also, to be honest, walk around Disney without feeling, oh, I feel guilty being here. No, it's a riot. It was fun being with CJ. And uh, we went out to the, in the morning, had breakfast in their special hotel built at Disney. And uh, there was a lady there dressed to um, be married, bride. And some people come. I mean, this couple were from Japan. And they'd come to MGM Disney World to be married at this special special place and he said and CJ said he said I think this costs he said hold on let me ask, ask the lady how much does it cost to be married here and she said well, it ranges from $20,000 I thought 20000 to $200,000 I mean I took it for granted 20000 was top no 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 
Then the limo comes, you know, the limo, you think, there it goes, there it goes, there it goes, the limo, the one limo. <laughs> well, how do you make a car like that? And, uh, and the whole, you know, the whole thing. And, but you must learn. We had, had breakfast there, and then and she said to CJ, you know, would you like the medium or the large? And he said, uh, the large. She said, the large, we're here, we're enjoying God. And now, it's learning, learning to be able to live in both. And I think this is important for us, just to get it right, just to get it right. And sometimes we will only be locked into one or another for a season. But there's, there's something Paul is saying here. He's writing from a prison. He knows the hard life. But he's also able to say, I've learned to be content. I can handle life. I can handle every aspect of life. We're not, we don't depend on Disney. You can say, oh, this is clever, brilliant. But boy, you know it's not going to do any good for you. We've found contentment elsewhere, but we can touch stuff. And uh, again, one could wish to spend longer on that in a sense. But I think it's, a, it's again a call to a maturity, which I don't want to sound arrogant, but which our forefathers often didn't know. I don't come from a godly background in terms of family. We were talking in the cells yesterday of how we met and married and stuff. It's fun, isn't it? Hilarious. But I think of Wendy, who comes from... I mean, godly stock going back centuries, I mean, literally, back into the Huguenots and everything. They can trace it back. But the heritage with its brethren tinge and tightness, you mustn't do that, you don't wear that. Wendy had to, you know, Grace has had to unlock all kinds of things. And uh, you have to learn. There's a learning. I've learned the secret. The secrets to be learned of handling life with freedom and joy. And it was a blessing for me to be with Edward and Frieda on the edge of being in Meru and, and reaching further and further. And then they took us down to Nairobi. We stayed in a nice hotel overnight before flying out to get the timing right for the flight in a lovely hotel in a beautiful room. And I thought, they know how to handle both extremes. They can handle it. And I felt that's a mark of maturity and godliness and so don't be scared. Don't think the only way you learn contentment is get in a monastery and turn the whole thing off. It's God's world. Amen? Paul says, all things are yours. Let's not miss the point here. So we need help, and no doubt one could discuss that at length. But it's important, I believe, to see this. And then he says, oh, Matthias, quote there, I'm able for all things through the one who endues me with dynamite. Um, well, yeah, the power, all right? Dunamis is the word that's used. So, to press on, their gift as partnership in the gospel. Let's just uh, pick up these various ways in which he sees their gift. Their gift as partnership. He says, you have done well, the NASB has, or it was good of you. Um, apparently, both are far too bland to communicate what it says. Gordon Fee says, American slang fits. You did good. <laughs> and to say you did well, he feels as much to missing the point. And uh, he says it's a, it's a rich statement. The word can mean good, beautiful, splendid. You did great. <laughs> and uh, so it's important for us to uh, just catch the excitement in that. And um, it's, it also tells us it's possible to not do good in giving. Uh, we can not do well. And uh, it's interesting to notice that Jesus sat at the place where gifts took place, and he said some did well and some didn't. Some did good, and some didn't do good. 
And giving is, a, is not a place that is just generally covered. It's a place where Jesus distinguishes. That was good, that wasn't good. And so we need to teach the saints and we need to be good at it ourselves in terms of being authentic in our giving. Why was it good? Well, it wasn't casual. It wasn't nominal. It wasn't a token. They shared. Now, this is one of the reasons it was good. The word koinonia is in there. You were participating. You partnered with us. You did good because you partnered with us. That's the important thing that's being made here. Where it says, you share with me in my affliction. It's the word koinonia. It's partnership. We are partners. We're expressing joint ownership. And it's that word, Peter, James and John were partners in fishing before they became Christian. That was koinonia. The word isn't just a religious word. It's borrowed from a real world. They were partners in fishing. So when one of the nets gets filled, the others rush to help because we're partners. We don't want to lose this boat. It's my boat as much as your boat. My net as much as your net. We're partners. And yet, of course, that became the word in Acts 2, 42. They gave themselves to fellowship, partnership, partnership in the gospel. You did, you did good <laughs> because of our sharing, our partnership. Paul and the Philippians were in partnership. And as we talk about uh, an apostle in fellowship with churches, as, which is the way I introduced the study on Philippians, we want to really communicate this as a family of churches on a mission. We are in partnership. We are in partnership. We're not talking about token giving. We're talking about partnership. We're not talking about tithing before or after tax. We're talking partnership. We are jointly in this together. And it's important for us to take people out of tokenism into partnership, both in terms of your local church life and also in terms of the global mission and the, the reality of rich and poor. And I know for myself, in, in Stonely this year, when I did the second study on Deuteronomy 15, I know, to me, it was, more, it was, it was like a revelation in my heart that God took me on further in my understanding that it has ever been deeply in God's heart as he wrote it into the Jewish social economy uh, to let people off their debts, to let them off their slavery. If the seven years comes, well, sorry, you won't get your money back because God was more interested in their corporate well-being and sharing than he was in individual justice. Did I get my money back? God was more concerned with the shalom the peace of the whole community, making sure there were not over-rich people and over-poor people. It was more important to God there was partnership, koinonia, than there was individuals saying, hey, you owe me this much. And so the horrors at Corinth when Paul says, you've got a Christian going to a law against another Christian? What are we on about? This is the community of God. And so we've got to really capture this, and I feel God's constantly pushing us further in this. Now this church was excellent and he used to uh, boast about them. He is here somewhat. He says you more than any of the other churches and of course he boasts about them in 2 Corinthians 8 when he says I want you to know about the grace of God that was in the churches in Macedonia which of course Philippi was the leading one. And so they were excellent in this. So it was expressing partnership and let's, let's really help our churches to feel that. And just in practical terms, with stonely fading, we need to say, God, help us, fading into history, that is. 
we need to we need to say, Lord, how else are we going to express partnership in a very powerful way? Because Stonely has been a unique opportunity to see people on the video screens, uh, to have us together internationally, and then say, now let's raise, you know, one and a half million, whatever it was, to express our partnership. We need to not lose that because Stonely Bible Week is fading into history, especially when God is saying to us, I'm opening up the world to you more and more. So we've got to be aware of that in our current scene. So you express partnership. Secondly, their gift was a good investment, verse 17. The profit that increases to your account. NIV, what may be credited to your account. Fee says, being entered into the divine ledger as accumulating interest, which will find its full expression at the coming of Christ. And again, Matthias underlines this. He seems to suggest that this is a proper motivation, right? Don't be scared of it. A proper motivation for Christians to cultivate. They should seek out opportunities to expend their generosity upon the needy because by selling what they have and giving alms, they would make for themselves purses that don't grow old, a treasure in heaven that doesn't fail. So again, you've got, obviously, he's slipping into quoting the Lord Jesus there. And then a classic passage in Timothy Verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world, there's that phrase again, this present, passing, brief world, not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share. There's that word again, share, koinonia. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. There it is again, that, you know, they say you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. There's, there's a, a storing up into the future. Whatever that means, it is recurring in the scripture as a theme that is suggesting it's a proper motivation for Christians, as Matia puts it. So let's preach it. So let's preach it. Let's not be scared to preach it. And uh, really... Bring it to the people. And uh, I think sometimes um, within the faith, the world, what's called often the prosperity preacher and so on, we, we get scared of preaching on giving. I want to just say to you, don't be like that. <laughs> we talked yesterday about the danger of adopting a stance that is in contrast to an excess. I remember when I first came down to what was then called Vineyard in Cape Town, that was a stance by the then pastor. He thought faith teaching was so ugly, he refused to mention money. Isn't that true? He took a stance that you don't talk about money, and I know others, or we don't take an offering, because, well, some people think. Now, beloved, what some people think is not terribly relevant, is what does the Bible say? And so we mustn't be scared of preaching about money and teaching about giving and, and supplying to the people the biblical motivations for giving. One of which is, you're storing up treasure in heaven. Others of which are, give, it will be given to you. So, oh, that's the faith message. I don't care what you call it, it's a Bible message, what Jesus said. Jesus said, give, it will be given to you. And so don't be scared of that. And if people say, wasn't that, well, explain to them. No, no, it's Jesus, Jesus said it. 
I was thrilled when I got that Hodge quote, which I used at Stonely two or three years ago. Charles Hodge, not exactly part of the modern prosperity preachers, but saying, no, this is what the Bible says. Given it will be given from the 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9 section about sowing your seed. Because Laura Roberts invented that. No, no, no. Hodge quotes it in a previous century. It's in the Bible. Now, preach it. Go for it. I, I thank God what we've learned down in Brighton. I preach giving probably, have done for years, three times a year at Brighton. Latterly, twice a year. Three times a year. I preach it, and I preach it, and I preach it. And I tell them we're praying for it. And we got into it on a habit now of giving 100,000 three times a year. And we preach it and we believe for it and we go for it in the prayer meeting and I lead. And then when I was away for a while, sadly, it sunk quite considerably. And questions came, could we even complete the building? Maybe we shouldn't, which was a huge shock to me when I came back. It was a conversation in one elders meeting, one of the early elders meetings. Perhaps we should abandon the idea of the building which absolutely horrified me, but it reminded me of my apostolic calling. And so I came back in again and said, I, we're going for the building, this is, we're going for it. And I and then started preaching at the gift days again. Well, up, up it went again. Whack, straight back up, 100,000, we're up there again. It had dropped right back down to about 20,000, whether we can do this. It went straight back up again because we preached it and preached it and preached it. And we take, we take our offerings over two weeks because we know any church, they say up to 30% are missing on any given Sunday. Any church, they're away for one reason or another. We go over two weeks. We preach it two weeks. We give two weeks. Right? So if you miss week one, you give next week. And we talk like that. And sometimes when it was under... We say, right, we're under, right, we've got next week, we're going for this. We just oh, well, we nearly got it this time. And I feel God's taught us. No, that won't do. We're going for it. And so now we've got a, we've got a, a history of it. It's in our bones. And when we finished the building, which was costing us 100,000 three times a year, and honestly, we don't have rich people. There, there are no, I, don't, I sometimes envy these guys near a town, we, London. We haven't got rich people. And I think, how does this come in? It is awesome. But God is doing it and does it. And we, we, the elders, Pete said, well, now the building's over. We'll drop down to two a year, which I thought, well, fair enough, because it was for the building. So we dropped down to two gift days a year. But to the thrill of my heart is this, that the total of the two is now adding up to what we were getting over three, 147,000 the last one. And we've just done another one just the week before I came away. And I preached through this text because I've been living in Philippians uh, for the last few weeks for this. So I thought, God, I've got to prepare for Sunday. Oh no, Philippians, we'll do this. So we, I preached this last week. Halfway through, week one, I think it was 75th hour we got on the first Sunday. And then the second Sunday, it'll take us booming through again. And I said, can't we go back to three? And Pete in the elders meeting said, why don't we go back to three and have one of them just before the June conference? So we raise 100,000 and give it to NFI at the June conference. I thought, whoa. Now, see, we've, we've, we weren't there years ago. And at one point, we weren't there when I went away for a while. But it's now in us. And last time I preached it, I said to the people as a church, I was praying about this earlier today. I felt God said, share this, all right? So I'm sharing it. I said, I said to the church now, church, there is a grace of giving on us as a people now. Now, don't take lightly 
a grace that's on you. Some churches have got grace for this, grace for that. We have a grace for giving. Now we're going to pray, but listen, don't throw away the privilege of a grace that's on us as a church. So we're going for it. And I thank God they've hit it again and again. And uh, I don't want to talk just about one church. I thank God for the Indian church. I, I honestly want to honor uh, dear Alan Vincent, who I feel so that in the early roots we need to work at. And don't just, I, I'm not comfortable with, well, just leave it. Preach it. Paul preached it. Preach it and don't be scared of people saying, oh, that's faith preaching. Well, hallelujah, I don't want unbelief preaching. Let's believe it. And so, and, and see, the re see how Paul, Paul's giving them reasons. And I went through all these reasons with the church um, two weeks ago where it was, I preached on the Sunday. I went through these reasons. It's, uh, uh, it's partnership. We're in partnership. And so we don't have a building project anymore, but we're in partnership with all kinds, you guys all over. We're in partnerships. I preach it. We're partners. NFI, we're partners. We're partners with our friends uh, around the world. We're going to be involved with them. Then, then it's a good investment. Come on. It's a good investment. You're storing up for heaven. Preach it. Thirdly, or fourth in this list, their gift as a fragrant aroma. It's an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And Hendrickson, in his commentary on Philippians, sums this up, I think, better than the others. The gifts are an odor of sweet smell, an offering presented to God, welcome and very pleasing to Him. They are, a comparab they are comparable to the thank offering of Abel, of Noah, of the Israelites, when in the proper frame of mind they brought the whole burnt offering, and of believers generally, in New Testament terms, in de dedicating their lives to God, as did also Christ when He, in a unique manner, in uh, Ephesians 5. He acknowledges that their deed was not merely an act of sympathy shown to a friend in need, but a genuine offering presented to God. Now, it's, it's worth studying all those texts and presenting that, that this is fragrant worship. Uh, in contrast to Malachi, where effectively God said it stinks. Didn't he? He says, I wish someone closed the temple if you're going to come with this sort of offering. So again, I touched on that with the church. Come on, next week, we don't want our offering to stink. You know, God will sniff your offering. And he wants a fragrant aroma. Don't let it stink. And so we, that's Paul. And we can do that. And then next, their gift and the promise of provision. And it's in that very context, when they have given, now my, you've supplied my needs abundantly, now my God shall supply all your needs. That's the context, again, for this famous verse. It's in your giving that you will receive. And I know many of us could stand and give testimony to this. Let's not be frightened of it. God promises to meet our needs. According to their need? No. Acor out of his riches? No. <laughs> According to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. In keeping with his glorious wealth. I know it seems uh, maybe out of place, but I happened to catch a, a late-night documentary on Elton John the other week on television, and it was hilarious. They were saying how generous he is. Apparently, he's crazy generous, and he just gives away huge things to people. And uh, it really struck me, because I saw it the night before I preached this, that he gave according to his riches. They were interviewing Rod Stewart, and Rod Stewart said, oh, it was coming to Christmas. So he said, I thought, what should I give Elton? Apparently, they're buddies. So he said, I'll give him a fridge. 
so he's going to give him a fridge. So he said, I gave him a fridge that only cost me a few hundred dollars. And then all pounds. And then he said, but he said, then I saw Elton and he gave me this 8,000 pound fleece. I felt such a fool because Elton John just gives out of his riches. He likes someone who says, have a car. He gives away things that are just stupid, but he gives according to his riches. <laughs> he gives in keeping with his flamboyant wealth. And here, it's not giving according to Rod Stewart's need. It's just giving according to Elton John's multi-million resources. Well, it's a pathetic illustration, but there you go. <laughs> treat, it, treat it with the contempt it deserves. <laughs> and then their gift and the resulting doxology. Uh, you just see this again and again in Paul, don't you? Or indeed in Peter and uh, the New Testament writers. Just one glimpse of his glory and he can't help praising. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. Now to God our Father be glory forever and ever. He's just, uh, he can't help praising. Uh, just one reminder of Christ and he starts praising again. His, his uh, letters are often interrupted by these shouts of praise. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits. Amen. Father, we praise you for your rich provision and uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we could learn so much from a man in prison, a man in chains, that he has found such a secret that he can share it with centuries of readers from around the nations, from east to west, north to south, that he has set forth a Christ who's enough for us. Lord Jesus, we praise you today. We, we do honor you. We thank you for God's laughter. We thank you for God's peace. You're, we thank you you're never anxious, Father. We thank you not wondering what the devil will do next. You laugh in the heavens. And Jesus, we, we bless you that your peace is accessible to us, that we can know your peace in our hearts, overflowing. We can learn the secret, whether it's tough or easy, whether we're in some poverty or some riches. We can walk with you through it all. And we can thank you for the beauties of your creation and even for what we call common grace. We thank you for the snow. We thank you, God, for the beauty of the mountains. We thank you, God, for all things you've given us richly to enjoy. And we know who to thank. We thank you, God. We thank you for beautiful music, for poetry. We thank you for beautiful movement, for sport and fun and games. We thank you, God. You're so wonderful to us. And we can celebrate you in the midst of your world and look forward to the new heavens and the new earth, Lord Jesus, that you're storing up for us. We thank you. We look forward to all these things as we live out our citizenship briefly in this outpost here. We want to live as free men and women with dignity and peace and joy. And Lord, not anxious and fearful of what will men do to us. God, keep us in it. And we do pray, make us a generous people in partnership that spans the continents, a rich partnership. We pray, lead us into it. Continue with us today as we look into these themes more, that we shall be a people in partnership across the nations, reaching to the poor and needy out of our resources. Have your way, O oh God. Bless your wondrous name amongst us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This is the concluding part of this six-part series. 
For more information on New Frontiers resources, visit the website on www.newfrontiers.xtn.org.